Our scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the the things that have taken place there these days? He asked them, what things? They replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the things about himself and all the scriptures. As they came near to the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Isn't it wonderful having Joyce back? Thank you, Joyce. She's she's been a little under the weather, and it's just wonderful to have her come back dancing and, and bring such joy to our worship. Let us turn to God in prayer. Dear Lord, we pray in these few moments that you will take us back in time and put us on that road to Emmaus and help us to imagine what it would feel like to be Cleopas and his friend, to experience your unexpected presence. Lord, teach us what this story has to say about our living today. Speak to us. Your servants are listening. Amen. This story of uh, Jesus appearing as a stranger on the road to Emmaus with Cleopas and his friend is familiar probably to most of us here. We probably we could probably tell the story uh, without ever even opening our, our Bibles. Um, but have you ever wondered why only one of them is named? There's Cleopas 
and someone. There are two of them, but we don't, we don't know the other person. You know, and I, and I had always, you know, and it probably shows my own bias or prejudice that I've always assumed there were these two men that were on the way um, to their home in Emmaus. But uh, a few years ago, someone in this congregation raised the question, had you ever thought that maybe that's Cleopas's wife? Maybe. Uh, I never thought about that before. Uh, why did Luke just name Cleopas? Why didn't he just say two? If, if he couldn't name both, why didn't he just say two? And it makes me wonder, maybe, just maybe, uh, Luke purposefully doesn't give us the name of the other traveler because maybe that's you or me, you know, that it's sort of maybe we're traveling along with Cleopas and Jesus. And so maybe there are some lessons that we can learn. Maybe, maybe God's trying to tell us something. I think this story gives us several truths about the closeness of God, because clearly we're talking about Jesus being right there, the closeness of God. And I'd like to suggest four of them. And so I'm going to look at four truths about the closeness of God. Number one, God comes to us unexpectedly. When we least expect it, boom, there's God. Okay. Now, the road to Emmaus from Jerusalem is about seven miles. Uh, if you're traveling at just kind of a leisurely pace, you probably do that in a couple of hours, seven miles. So it's plenty of time to, you know, ponder uh, the events of the day. For Cleopas and his friend, um, a lot of things had been happening over the course of three days. Um, they were clearly followers of Jesus. They were not just two uh, residents of Emmaus that had been visiting in Jerusalem. They were clearly followers of Jesus because Luke tells us that when they described to Jesus who this man Jesus was to them, he called, they call him, uh, Luke tells us, they say, he was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And not only that, they go on to say, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So clearly Cleopas and his friend, they, they kind of, Jesus was really the Messiah for them. And they, you know, that maybe built up their expectations and their hopes. And maybe that's why they became so despondent and sad. Luke tells us that they stood still looking sad. That's in verse 17. And they go on to explain uh, to this stranger why they're sad. Because they say, they say Didn't, don't you even know what's been happening in Jerusalem you know, this prophet, this, this one that we had hoped that would redeem Israel. Well, guess what they did to him? They, they crucified him and they buried him in a tomb. And it's, it, you know, our hopes were dashed. That was three days ago. And then they go on to say, but there's some strange stories are being told. Now, remember, this is on the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. This was that first Easter Sunday, probably in the afternoon. So they have already heard the tales. They've heard the stories about the women who went to the tomb and they found that the, the door had been rolled away. They found that the tomb was empty, except the women came back and told the disciples that they actually saw two angels. They saw some angels in there that said Christ had risen. 
Now, this clearly is early enough in the day that Jesus has not yet appeared to the disciples because what, the, what Cleopas and his friend say to Jesus, who is walking with them, these women said that he, he was alive, but some, of, some among the disciples, Simon in particular, went to the tomb and they found, well, like what the women said, it was empty. The body wasn't there. They didn't see any angels. They didn't see anything. They, and, of course, we know that Peter and John, they went home because they believed that the body had been stolen. So at this point, at this juncture, Cleopas and his friend really don't believe the women just like none of the other male disciples did. And so that's why they're going home just like Peter and John did. They went home. They're going home to Emmaus, and they're, being, they're sad and despondent because... Well, they pretty much figured the body of Jesus had been stolen. And they're not about to believe that idle tale of the women that he has risen. Well, that's when maybe Jesus gets a little annoyed with these two who are so sad. And he said, why are you, why are you so slow to believe? He, he calls them foolish because... Clearly, they haven't caught on to the, the message, the prophecies. And, and Luke tells us that Jesus, beginning with Moses and the prophets, begins to tell them about himself. He, he, he wants them to know that everything that has happened in the last few days really was, was already planned. And, and they really shouldn't be sad. They should be happy. They shouldn't be going home. They should be they should be proclaiming to the world that the Messiah had come and had been risen from the grave. What an unexpected blessing as Jesus began to tell Cleopas and his friend about Jesus and, and, and about how all of this was supposed to be. That, that's kind of, you can almost tell him, remember, remember Moses? Remember how he was so unexpectedly surprised by that, that talking bush, that burning bush, telling him to go to Pharaoh? You could almost imagine Jesus saying, Hasn't, isn't that the way God always works? Just unexpectedly, when you least expect it, that's when God appears and, and starts calling you out of your misery and your sadness. Maybe he, he talked about Jonah, maybe. And he said, remember Jonah, how uh, Jonah didn't want to go and save those people in Nineveh, the, the, the residents of the capital of the enemy state. And yet, even as Jonah tried to flee from God, God kept drawing him back. Even when Jonah said, throw me into the sea, God sent a great fish to swallow him up and belch him out on the shores of Nineveh. You can almost imagine saying all of this, saying, isn't that the way God works? So unexpectedly coming into our lives in these ways. It's probably why Jesus told the story earlier to his disciples and those who would listen about the bridesmaids about saying you got to be prepared because you can't expect you can't expect God to appear when you expect God to appear 
But you've got to expect the unexpected. And so he tells the story about the bridesmaids, about those who trimmed their lamps and were all ready for the bridegroom and those who did not. And when the bridegroom finally came, they were out trying to get oil in their lamps and they missed the bridegroom altogether. So Jesus has always been trying to tell his disciples to be be ready for the unexpected. About 16 years ago, um, my wife was at a blood lab in Richmond because I have a blood condition that probably caused the death of my father when he was like 48 years of age. And so I've been taking medication for most of my life about this. And so she was at a blood lab because we were having our three sons tested. And, and while she was there, she was sitting waiting to be seen. And she overheard a conversation between the clerk and another woman who was standing at the counter. And the, 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 uh, the person who worked there at the lab asked this woman, what, what's the name of your, your husband? And she said, Charles Horton. And my wife, is, and I've often kind of made fun of her and saying that uh, if, uh, if any of the other uh, people in our family had been there, they probably would never have raised the question, but my wife was a little bit of a busybody, and she said, hey, hey, um, my husband has a brother that he's never met named Charles Horton, and uh, my husband's name is Alvin Horton, and the woman didn't didn't know any any such Horton, but she said, "Well, um, could it be possible?" And and my wife said, "Where where was your husband born?" And and she said, "Well, Raleigh, North Carolina." And my wife said, "Well, that's probably not him because my husband's from uh, Alabama." And the woman, her name was Jean, is Jean. She said, uh, "Well, my husband's father, uh, he didn't grow up with him, but he uh, he." He was from a little town in Alabama called Satsuma, Alabama. And, and my wife said, well, my, father, my husband's father is buried in Satsuma, Alabama. And they started talking. And Cheryl, my wife, called and said, I don't know, but I might have found your, your brother. See, I had never met him. I knew that my dad had a son. He would be my oldest brother. I knew his name was Charles, but that was it. I didn't know much more, except uh, I remember that Dad had told me her his his wife's name. My dad's wife at that time was Virginia Mueller, and so we're on the phone. I said, Cheryl, ask her what what her his mother's name is, and she asked, and Jean said Virginia Mueller. Well, that was her maiden name. I said, don't let her leave. (laughs) So I came over and we talked for quite a while in in uh, in the parking lot. And we made arrangements for us to, for Cheryl and me to go over to their home later that evening. And when we got there, we, we talked some about, you know, family. As far as Charles knew, he, he didn't know who his family was. His mother would never talk about his father, and she was now deceased, and so was his uh, stepfather. And I had brought along, I'd gone back, and I, I had one picture. I said, I have one picture of my brother Charles. I've never met him, didn't know if he was alive, didn't know if he carried our name or if he had another name, didn't know. 
and, and I said, I've got this one picture, and I pulled out the photo, and as soon as I pulled out the photo, Charlie pulled out the exact same photo, as if they came from the same, well, I think they came from the same negative. And he said, that house you see in the background, that, that's the house I grew up in in Raleigh. And you can't, it's hard to see in the picture, but the, you can see part of the number of the house. Uh, our dad is kind of positioned, so you can't see the whole number. Well, Charlie filled in the whole number. He said, that's our house in Raleigh. I mean, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. I knew that I had found my brother so unexpectedly in a blood lab of all things. How appropriate. Our, you know, we, we lived nine miles apart in Richmond. Neither of us had any Virginia connection. I was from Alabama. He was from North Carolina. But here we were in the same city living nine miles apart. And our names were nine names apart in the phone book. I know you don't know what a phone book is, but back in those days we had a phone book. That's the way God operates, you see. When you least expect it, whammo, there God is walking beside us. God is closer than you think. Second lesson we can learn from, the second truth we can learn from this story of Jesus walking with Cleopas and his friend is that God often appears as a stranger. Now think about all the ways that you know of in the in the Bible where Jesus appeared as a stranger. For, for instance, of course, this story appearing to Cleopas and his friend. But what about Mary? That Earlier that morning, she was at the tomb. And even when the, the angels told her that he had risen, she didn't really, really grasp the truth of that. And she turns around and she sees a man standing there, wants to know why she's crying. And, and she thinks he's the gardener. She thinks maybe he knows where the body of Jesus is. He is a stranger to her. And remember the story of the blind man? The blind man is healed by Jesus. He doesn't even see Jesus. And it's only afterward, after he's been interrogated by the, the religious leaders, after the crowd is dissipated, and after he's kind of taken, gone over to kind of a corner, that Jesus pulls him aside and asks him, do you know who the Son of Man is? And the, and the blind man who now can see says, no, I don't, I don't know who he is. Could you tell me who he is so I could, so I could thank him? And he said, well, I'm he, I'm, I am, you see, I'm the one who brought sight to you. You know, as far as the blind man was concerned, that Jesus standing there was a stranger to him over and over again. That's how God comes to us as a stranger. When Abraham was old and when he, think, when he thought that God's promise of offspring was just pointless, along comes these three strangers telling him that, yes, indeed, his, his wife, Sarah, was going to give birth to a child and he would indeed become the father of a multitude of nations. And when Jacob uh, got into trouble with his brother and then finally got into trouble with his brothers-in-laws and, and when, when he was kind of caught between a rock and a hard place, having, having turned all of them against him, when he thought all had been lost, there in the middle of the night by the river Jabbok comes this stranger wrestling with him. It's God who's wrestling with Jacob. That's how God comes as a stranger over and over again. The writer of Hebrews wrote, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing that, some have entertained angels 
without knowing it. That's why God wants us to treat strangers as if, as if they are Christ. Even as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me, is what Jesus told those who would listen. Years ago, when I was serving Mount Pisgah United Methodist Church in, in Richmond, it was its large suburban church, and we were getting we were on the verge of building a, a big gymnasium that would be our fellowship hall and would be a place where our contemporary worship would be. We were going to spend a lot of money. It was going to be a big undertaking. It was about that time that that we learned that a, a little a little church in in South Richmond was about ready to close its doors. Berryman United Methodist. And in talking with the pastor and some of the people, it became clear that they were wrestling with giving up that ministry and feeling a need to really do something there. And so, so we got a group of people together to go downtown to, to meet with a group from their church to see maybe we could merge our, our ministries and maybe we could continue that ministry in South Richmond. I remember the night that we met, it was a long meeting, and, and, and we left there just not sure what we should do, and, and, and we, we all, our little group stopped at a McDonald's. It was late, almost closing time, and, and we sat around tables, and we wrestled with what, all the conversation that had taken place that night. It was clear we didn't know what we were supposed to do, and then out of the, out of the corner of that McDonald's, a stranger appeared, and he came up to our table And he said, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. I I don't know what your issue is. I don't know what you're wrestling with. But I want you to know this. God will see you through. And then he disappeared. And we all sat there with our mouths hanging open. Who, Who was this? Was it Christ walking with us on our road to Emmaus? Was it God appearing to Abraham? Was it this stranger wrestling with us? in the middle of the night. Yes, God is closer to us than we think. The third truth that we can learn from this story is that God waits to be invited. Luke tells us that when Cleopas and his friend had reached their home, Luke says Jesus walked ahead as if he were going on. Can you imagine if if, the, if Cleopas and his friend had not invited him into their house, he would have gone on. They would have never have experienced the fact that this stranger who had walked with them was Christ. Never would have known it. Because it was not until he came into the house and broke bread that they realized and saw that it was Christ who walked with them. In this famous painting by Warner Solomon called Christ at Heart's Door, you see that there's no door there. It's, it's a painting that depicts the, the passage from Revelation, I stand at the door and knock. In other words, Christ stands at the door and knocks. Now, now I've heard the controversy and people say, well, of course, there's not a doorknob there because he's standing in front of it. There's really a doorknob, you just can't see it. No, I don't know about that. Yes, I, I, that's true. But I think Warner Solomon painted it that way so you could not see the doorknob. Because when you think about it, look at the way... Look at the way the door is positioned. If he were truly knocking on the door in a way that when the door opened, he could talk to the person inside, the hinge would be on the other side, wouldn't it? See what I mean? 
I mean, you think about when you knock on a door and when you go to a door, you're going to enter where the doorknob is, but he's facing the hinge. Well, I think what Solomon did is he, he painted the door that way purposefully so the doorknob would be behind Jesus, you see. And why did he do that? Because what he's trying to say to us is that Christ will not force feed. Christ will not knock down the door to get into our house, but we have to invite him in. Now, it's called Christ at heart's door because can you see the heart? See, over his head, that's the first kind of hump of the top of the heart, but behind his back, the other hump. And so that's what creates the heart. And so Solomon is saying, Christ stands at the door of our heart, wanting in, would love to come and and sit at our table, but we have to invite him in. When I went to my first walk to Emmaus, which is an event, um, kind of a a retreat, goes from like Thursday to Sunday, where you do a lot of soul searching and a lot of praying. When I went, uh, it, I, had only, I had only been at the church that I was serving for a few months, and, and it was a new responsibility for me because I had just completed 15 years in communications work for the conference, and now I was going back to be, be, being a pastor again. And, and I was scared to death. I was shaking in my boots. I, I wasn't sure I was up to it. I, I did not. I really was wrestling. And I was scared to death. One of the nights uh, involves a time where uh, some kneeling rails are placed in a room. And, and if you want people to pray for you, you go up. You have to make that decision. No one forcefully pay, prays over you. But you have to ask for prayer. I was one of the last people to enter the room, and I sat down, and, and there was only one chair left sitting right next to me. I was, like I said, I was one of the last ones, not the last. The last person to enter was a man from my own church, and he sat down next to me. And as the evening wore on, and as other people went up to the kneeling rail, it, I just had this overwhelming urge to ask for prayer. But I am absolutely convinced if, if God had not sent this man to sit next to me, I would not have asked for prayer. I was not that kind of person. I, don't, I didn't ask for help. But because he was someone I knew, because I felt I could, I could ask him, I, I put my hand on his knee and, and I could barely get it out. I, I was so emotional. I said, when, when one of the kneeling rails opens up, I'm going to go up there and, and kneel. And if you could ask some of the guys from the church to come and pray. And so when time came, I went up and I knelt. And sure enough, he had gathered up a, a number of men from our church that had come to that event. And they gathered around me. And I wept. I wept. I wept like a baby. And I told them, I said, I don't know that I can do this. And they prayed strength for me. And you know, I would not have received that blessing if I had never asked for it. 
I would have come, I would have sat down, I would have listened, I would have watched, and I would have walked out of the room, and I would not have experienced the hand of God on my heart if I had not asked for it. You see, God waits to be invited. That's why God is closer than we think. And finally, finally, the... The fourth truth about the closeness of God is that God is revealed in brokenness. Not when everything is all put together and everything is nice and neat and perfect in our lives, but God is revealed in the brokenness of life, where we hurt, where we, where we feel pain, where we struggle to put all the broken pieces together. That's where God is revealed. Luke says when Jesus was at table with them, he took bread, he blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then, it is then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Do you see every time we break bread on a communion Sunday, every time we share in communion, as we break the bread, we are remembering the brokenness of Christ. And it is in remembering the brokenness of Christ that we begin to see the Christ who is revealed in the brokenness of our own lives. You know, Luke wrote a two-volume piece. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, but he also wrote the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, he tells the story of an Ethiopian eunuch who clearly had come to the Lord and had traveled all the way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to worship God. But because he was a eunuch, he was undoubtedly barred from the temple because the scriptures say that eunuchs can't go into the temple. And so he was on his way back on the road that leads to God those thousands of miles going from Jerusalem back to his home in Ethiopia, probably feeling just horrible. And God sends Philip to him. And what is Philip here? He hears the Ethiopian reading from the book of Isaiah about suffering, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, justice was denied him. And Philip asked him, do you know what you're reading? And the, and the Ethiopian said, well, no, how can I unless somebody helps me? And he calls Philip to sit up in the chariot with him, and he begins to read this scripture. And, and then the Ethiopian said, who is the writer talking about? Is he talking about himself or about someone else? And for the Ethiopian, he's thinking about his own brokenness, his own injustice that is den- the justice that's denied him. And, and Luke tells us that beginning with this scripture, Philip begins to tell him the good news of Jesus Christ. And to this very day, we use that scripture, do we not, in Isaiah, to remind us of the brokenness of Christ? You see, Philip was trying to say, you feel horrible? You feel like your life has kind of come to an end? Do you feel like you've been barred from the temple? Well, guess what? The Son of God has experienced the very thing that you're experiencing. And he's done that willingly because he loves you. And that's when the Ethiopian said, there's some water. They must be passing through an oasis. He said, there's some water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? And Philip jumps down, he baptizes the, the Ethiopian, and then he disappears. God is closer to us than we think. 
And that's what Luke is telling us over and over again, whether it's in his gospel or in the book of Acts. He's telling us over and over and over again that God is closer than you think. God comes to us unexpectedly, often appears as a stranger, waits to be invited, and is revealed in brokenness. All you need to do is look for God with the eyes of faith. Let us pray. Lord, forgive us for our blindness. Help us to see that you walk next to us. Help us to be open and inviting to your presence. Amen.